This is going to be a great series by the grace of God. We're really going to learn from this. It's a great book. And I do encourage you to read the book throughout the week. Get into Galatians. It's enormously enriching for the Christian. In my grandmother's garden, there used to be four apple trees in the Harold Wood Estate. Very nice place to go. Four apple trees. And when I was a little kid, we used to go with my cousins and we used to go and play and climb up the apple trees. Those trees, one of the trees particularly, was a great massive tree full of fruit. We used to try and clamber up this tree. It's also the most dangerous one to climb. Now, you look at this tree, you could see fruit hanging on the lower branches, which was pretty easy to pick. But, as always with apple trees, if you went higher up, you could find much better fruit. Great big massive prize apples there. I think they were cooking apples, they weren't much good. We didn't used to eat them, we used to throw them at the cat. But, <laughs> the cat got its revenge as well. But, if you want fruit, good fruit, generally speaking, you have to avoid the low-hanging fruit, don't you? You have to go up, climb higher, put your neck on the line to try and get that good fruit, which is hanging just out of reach at the top of the tree. Now, I want to put it to you tonight, the Bible is a little bit like that as well, because some things in the Bible are pretty easy to understand, so obviously I help sometimes teaching the Sunday school and the kids, and some stories in the Bible are very, very easy to explain. So, for example, the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not exactly difficult to understand the moral and meaning of this story. But there are parts of the Bible which are much more challenging. And I want to suggest to you that Galatians is one of those books, one of those parts of the Bible. It's not an easy book just to kind of read it and understand it straight away. It's like that fruit which is at the top of the tree. You have to work to get it, but hopefully it's worth it. There's a lot of riches there available if we make a bit of effort to dig around and try and understand what Paul is saying to us, what God is saying to us through Paul, through this book. Now, you might read Galatians, especially if you're a new Christian, a young Christian, you might think, what is it, what's this on about? You know, it's quite... You know, irrelevant, perhaps it's a bit strange. It's talking about a particular time and situation in church history. It's talking about Jewish controversies. It's talking about circumcision. What on earth is Paul on about and what relevance does it have for us in 21st century Brighton? Now, a lot of people might say that and you sort of think, well, why do we need to read this? But it's in God's word and the principles have not changed and therefore it's important that we engage with this book. And as I said, it's got an enormous amount to teach us and encourage us. Why study Galatians? I'm sorry there's not much to read up there tonight. I didn't get time to do a PowerPoint. Why study Galatians? Well, as I said, firstly, it's in the Word of God. Secondly, some great men of God highly recommend this book. Great men of the past, great Christian men, fed their souls on this book. So it won't won't hurt us to have a little look, will it, tonight? So if these great saints, Luther and Calvin, and these men benefited from this book, we can certainly learn something as well. Now, there was a man called Luther, and he was a great Christian reformer, and he said this about the letter of Galatians. This letter to the Galatians is my letter. To it, I am as if I were in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Now, Catherine was Luther's wife, so he was comparing this book to his wife. He was so in love with this book, he was so keen on it, he was mad keen, that he said, it's it's almost like I'm married to this book, I can't get enough of it. And he compared it to his wife. So that's not recorded what his wife felt about it. So here I'm saying tonight, this book is my Anya, okay? But nobody will quote that in 500 years. But this book deals with the most important question that a person could ask. The heart of the message is this. How can a person, how can a human being be right with Almighty God and be included as one of his people? Now, if you were to ask people out there on the street, you would get a thousand and one answers, especially in a city like Brighton. 
People would give you a myriad of answers how to be right with God. They wouldn't even agree about what is God. But you know, this is an important question. It's the most important question. If you get this one wrong, you've got a lot of time to ruin your mistake. You've got all eternity to regret the wrong decision you make. So it's right we engage with this and grasp this truth. In fact, I would say to you, it's callous and careless and shameful not to tell people the truth of this book. Because if this is the way to be right with Almighty God, the only way, people need to hear it. So Galatians spells out the only answer, the only way to be right with God. And it encourages us as Christians to be steadfast in that. It speaks about the dangers of misunderstanding the message or changing the message. Adding something to it or taking something away, even in a very subtle way, that is a very, very dangerous thing to do. This actually happened. So 500 years ago, the church in Europe was in a terrible mess. So it was mired in error. And the church had completely misunderstood or lost its way with regard to what it means to be right with God. So the church at the time claimed the way to be right with God was, yeah, you had kind of faith in Jesus Christ, but you mingled it with all kinds of good works, meritorious acts, meritorious meaning something you do to get favour from God. All kinds of pilgrimages and rituals and statues and saints and all kinds of nonsense like that. Faith was somewhere in there, belief in Jesus Christ, but it's all mixed together in this kind of horrible mess which confused people and made people feel they had to work hard to obtain salvation, to be right with God. Now, ordinary people like you and me couldn't do much about that because A, we couldn't read the Bible because it was in Latin. B, a lot of us couldn't read anyway. We weren't educated enough. I think most of us probably can read in here. Also, the church had a system where the priesthood, the leaders of the church said, we, we are the ones who have the Bible. We're the ones who can interpret it. If you want to know about the Bible, you want to know about salvation, come to us. Don't look at the Bible. We're the ones, we're the experts. We'll tell you what to believe. So ordinary people had no way of going to the Bible and checking to see if these things were really true. And then at that time, God raised up a group of men, mostly men. And these men started to rediscover some of those precious, precious truths that had been lost hundreds of years, they started to discover, actually, you know, the Bible doesn't say we work to earn our salvation. The Bible doesn't say we can be right with God by working hard and do all kinds of religious acts. The Bible says that we're right with God, we're made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ and by his grace. And that, can you imagine how precious that truth must have been after years and years of bondage and slavery to all this kind of religiosity? No, it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. You know, when I, when I was uh, younger, I used to struggle with false theology, which made me feel that although I was a Christian, God would only just accept me because somehow he lets you in, but after that you have to work hard to try and keep in the kingdom. Otherwise, you know, God will boot you out. And that, you wouldn't believe how much that actually affected me and made me a slave. I mean, Anya remembers that. I was absolutely crippled by this false teaching. And these were by well-meaning Christians who perhaps got confused, thinking that salvation is something that we choose. Thinking that we have to work hard to try and meet God's approval. Now, of course, we do have to try and please God. We should want to do that as Christians. But how crippling it was. How debilitating to be made a slave again. When grace... Precious grace is what saves someone. You know, when I started to understand that again, it was like spring had come again after the winter. 
the grace of God is what saves people. And God will keep us to the end. God chooses us, God does mighty work in us, and God will see us through to the end by grace. It's all of grace and his glory. And that's what happened 500 years ago at the Reformation, literally 500 years ago, October 500 years ago. This kind of movement started, or it's like gathered pace. People started to rediscover these great truths. And they didn't just discover that grace was the way we were made right with God. They also discovered this as well, that the church is not the highest authority. The highest authority is God expressed in his word. God has given us his word. And it's important that the church does not put itself over the Bible as though it were kind of the authority over the Bible. No, the church submits itself or should submit itself to the Bible, the teaching of God. And the church got that all wrong. We don't go to the church for answers. We go to the Bible. Now, the church, if it's doing its job properly, should be teaching the Bible well. But ultimately, we do not depend on the church. We go right back to the word of God and say, what does the word of God say? God has preserved this for us in a written record, and it is precious. And these men started to discover this as well. We call this the Reformation, this period when these men discovered the truth. And I think it's right as a church that we mark this, that we thank God for raising up those men who discovered these precious truths again. You know, this book of Galatians is absolutely key to these great reformers. They called it the battle cry of the Reformation. So as I said, we should, we should celebrate as a church that rediscovery of grace. How easy it is for the church to lose its way and drift into all kinds of error. Thank you. Thank praise the Lord that he drew us back to the word of God. Now, I want to tell you this. The book of Galatians has lots to say to us today. A huge amount. Because there's no new heresies in the church. Heresy rears its ugly head. Heresy meaning false teaching, deception. It comes again and again in different guises. But basically, it's the same thing. A lot of people would say the Apostle Paul was mistaken. That he somehow took the primitive message of Jesus and twisted that message and made it something quite different. Now, I've got a Muslim acquaintance, I've told you about him before, and he says, well, Paul completely misunderstood Jesus' message, and he twisted it, and he made it into a completely different system of works and other stuff, and Jesus didn't say that at all. But you know what? That's not a new heresy. Even right back at the time of Galatians, we see that Paul and his ministry were under attack by people that didn't like his gospel. They try and set Jesus against Paul as though they were two different gospels, or Peter against Paul, Peter against Jesus, whatever it might be. But the message is that this, these men are all united. And I want us as a church, as we go forward, to make this a banner around which we rally. Like salvation by grace, through faith. This is what we believe, this is what we hold on to, this is what we feed off, this is what we delight in, this is what we preach, this is what we proclaim. This is central, this is what powers the Christian life, grace. Now, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We'll go through this, 10 verses, not long. <clears throat> Let's see what we can draw out of this. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to gloss over some of this stuff. But Paul, right at the beginning, he sets out his story. And he describes himself as an apostle. Apostle being one who is sent on a mission, directly commissioned by Jesus Christ to go and to preach the gospel with the full authority of Christ, an ambassador for Christ. Now, I was thinking about this. 
Imagine one morning I woke up and decided that I wanted to be a police officer. I've often thought about it many times. You know, get a uniform somewhere off the internet and get a truncheon and get some CS gas and get a car and spray it white and customise it and, you know, put Sussex police on the side. Go up and down London Road arresting people I don't like. Very tempting. Imagine I decided one day I wanted to be a doctor. So, I, what's the thing doctors have? What's it? A stethoscope. Yeah. Get, so I get all the gear, I dress up smart, and I go to the hospital, the Royal Sussex, and I sort of tour the wards, you know, healing people and making them better. Well, I'm trying to anyway. I would be an imposter. I would be a disgrace. A person doing a thing like that would not just be a figure of fun, they would be a criminal. It is disgusting to tend to be somebody you're not. Not anybody can be a doctor. Not anybody can be a police officer. You have to be commissioned. You have to have qualifications. You have to be credible. You have to have the authority given to you from above to do that. You can't just dress up in a certain way and act in a certain way. You do more harm than good. Was Paul an imposter? Did he just decide one day, oh, there's some Christians about in the area. I think I'll be be an apostle. You know, I'll learn some of the language. I'll, you know, adopt some of the ways of Christians and go around proclaiming myself an apostle. Of course, the answer is no, isn't it? Paul's not an imposter. Paul was a genuine apostle. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but he was an apostle sent by Jesus Christ. We all know the story, the history, where Paul had a revelation of Damascus Rome. He saw the risen Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus completely turned around his life and sent him on a completely different path to preach the gospel across the world. Now, many, many people claim to have seen the risen Christ. Now, we, we all hear about these kind of, you know, these rather odd people. So I, I had a revelation from God and a vision about this, and God sent me to do this, that, and the other, deluded people. But Paul had evidence to back up his claims. That's the difference, I think, with Paul. His message could have come from nowhere else. One of the things we're going to be looking at next week is the, is the miraculous kind of credentials that Paul has. He didn't learn his gospel from somebody else. Look at verse 1 again. Set not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So straight away he's saying, this gospel, I didn't receive it from people. I didn't receive it from the twelve in Jerusalem. I didn't learn it secondhand from somebody else. I didn't read about it in a scroll. This was given to me by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Who raised him from the dead. That's important as well. Don't miss the detail of that. God raised him from the dead. Jesus, Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory on that road. He didn't just see a vision. He did see a vision, but it was actually Christ he saw who commissioned him to go. So this man is the genuine article. He is an apostle sent by the Lord Jesus. Not an imposter. Verse 2. So the church is in Galatia. Now... We know from this it wasn't just one church, it was a variety of churches in a particular Roman province. I'm not going to get hard from the geography. I did hear a sermon on the internet, a series of sermons in Galatians. The guy was very, very clever. He spent about five sermons just talking about the, the location of the Galatian churches. So there's a debate where they actually were. But I, 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 didn't, I couldn't really care less where they were, to be honest. It's not really that important. But there were churches in a particular area in Galatia. And these churches were young churches. Now, you think about young churches, they're susceptible to error, 
They're rather weak. They're, they're, they mean well. They're growing, but they're still open to bad influences. And these were also, importantly, Gentile Christians as well. They weren't Jewish Christians, converts. They were Gentiles from a Greek background or perhaps from a Celtic background. But they weren't, weren't Jewish people. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, Paul often writes like this in his letters. It's just a platitude. It's just something he says at the beginning every time. No, grace and peace are absolutely central, aren't they, to the gospel. Think about this. These two go together. Grace is the source of salvation. If there were no grace of God, there would be no salvation. And because of salvation, because of the grace of God, we have peace with God. Those two things are so important, aren't they? And Paul actually mentions here the place, the time, the occasion when the grace and peace of God were most demonstrably shown to the world. The cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. cross of Jesus Christ. Rescue. You know, I've often said this before, rescue is something you can't do to yourself. If you're drowning in the sea off Brighton, you can't swim, fall off the pier, you have to wait for a lifeboat to come and save you, or somebody to come, a strong swimmer to come and save you. You cannot possibly save yourself. That's what a rescue is. Somebody comes, sees you in trouble, takes you out of that mess, delivers you, saves you. Think about a burning building. So we all know about the terrible, tragic fire that happened in London in the summer. Imagine you're trapped in a burning building. There's no escape. I've never been in a burning building. You can imagine the horror. Sort of knowing the fire's getting closer and closer. You cannot escape. And then all of a sudden, somehow, a ladder is brought to a window and perhaps a firefighter comes and offers you the means to escape. How glad you would be to see that firefighter. Your situation was looking increasingly dangerous and you'd be just so delighted to see that person. And Jesus also rescues his people. How desperate our situation. How messed up, how troubled by sin, how embroiled in this present evil age as Paul puts it here. And somehow this, these verses say that Jesus dying on the cross dealt with our sins, it says here, for our sins to rescue us. Somehow that... <coughs> fact that Jesus dying on the cross rescued us from sin and from this present evil age. Something we could not deal with ourselves. And look here, all the glory goes to him. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is quite key to Galatians, is that the Galatians Christians have believed that salvation was something that God does to us. He rescues us through Jesus Christ, through that death on the cross. He rescues us and saves us, saves all who believe. Something we can't do ourselves. And yet, people have come in and preached a false gospel and distorted the gospel and added an element of us being able to save ourselves mixed in with the salvation offered in Christ. And Paul was adamant this was not the true gospel. That's very important to know that rescue is something that God does to us. I just want to quickly mention this. It says here, we're rescued from the present evil age. So, 
I thought about this. In a sense, there are two ages. There's the age we live in now, and there is the age to come. And in a sense, those two things overlap. When somebody becomes a Christian, they become a citizen, an inhabitant of the age to come. Now, it doesn't say that God rescues us from this world. We're still in this evil world, but we are rescued from this age that we live in. That's what God does. He rescues people, he takes them out, and he makes them citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And citizens of the kingdom of heaven reflect kingdom values. They reflect the godliness, the way that Christ wants us to live. They don't live a life of evil, which is characterising the evil age that we live in. That's very important too. Because some people would say, well, if we're saved by faith, we can live however we like. And Paul would say, no, if you're truly saved, if you're truly rescued, you're not just rescued on paper. It's not just a kind of legal declaration. It is that. It's far more than that. Christ will deliver you from this present evil age. And he will stop you from being evil. He will put in your heart new inclinations, new desires to live for Christ. Verse 6. Now this is where it gets, gets interesting. So Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Paul is absolutely amazed and aghast at these Galatians who had accepted the gospel. They had accepted the fact that Jesus had died for them to rescue them from their sins and from this evil age. And yet they had turned away to a different gospel. Now, I'm not going to get too much into this tonight. We'll follow this up in weeks to come. But if you look at Acts 15, don't turn to it now. There was this great big controversy. And there was a council in Jerusalem. All the church leaders got together to discuss this controversy in the early church. Acts 15 says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just to let you know, the apostles discussed this. The leaders of the church, they said... That's not true. We don't believe this. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by being circumcised. These men were coming in and they were trying to impose upon the Gentile believers the Jewish ritual, the Jewish covenant marker of circumcision. They said, no, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's okay. That's as far as it goes. But you need to do more than that. You need to be circumcised as well and obey certain aspects of the Jewish law. Otherwise, you're not really proper Christians at all. Paul was aghast and astonished. He was watching over them like a hawk with loving concern, like, you know, like, a, like a good father watching out for his children. And after all his efforts, he had expected better from them. He preached and preached and preached and he set them on a rock and he told them the truth of the gospel. And he explained to them that salvation is by faith, by simply receiving the gift that Christ has given us and believing in his finished work on the cross. And yet somehow, in his absence, deceivers had come in and were preaching this circumcision nonsense. You would be upset too, wouldn't you? If you'd worked hard to disciple people, people that you perhaps had brought to Christ and taught them and nurtured them, and then you went away for a period and found out that people had crept in and had corrupted this and messed up the gospel with false teaching. We would be upset as well, wouldn't we? Look at this in verse 6. He says, you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. These people were not just a little bit mistaken. It wasn't something that could be easily straightened out. Paul says, this is no gospel at all. It's no good news at all. This is a gospel that cannot save and cannot meet the needs of sinners. 
Look what it says here. You're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. The one who called them is God. He says you are deserting God. Actually, the word there in Greek um, is metatitomy, which means to transfer one's allegiance away. It's the word used for deserters in the army. People who fight for one side and then run away and join the other side. We know what happens to deserters, don't we? Well, they used to get shot. Very serious things deserve your side and fight for the other side. And this is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. You've deserted the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Very serious. Verse 7. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word confusing can mean agitate. Some people come in and they were trying to agitate and confuse the people, trying to pervert the gospel. The word here used is very strong. It means to completely reverse and turn the gospel upside down. To completely subvert it and change its meaning. It's a very strong word. I wonder, have you ever met somebody like that? Somebody who's come along claiming to be a Christian. And yet, you talk to them, you think, this person's got another gospel. Something is really, really strange about what they're preaching. They're not just a little bit mistaken, as any of us can be. It's actually something fundamentally wrong about what they believe. Well, I've met people like that. The danger is that these Galatian Christians were escaping from the sin and from this present evil age, and they were embracing the grace of Christ and receiving that and enjoying the grace and peace that comes from that. And then these troublemakers, these agitators have come in, these circumcision people, and they confused people. They troubled and upset the church. They sowed seeds of doubt. They said, who is this Paul? Oh, you don't want to listen to Paul. He's not even an apostle. He's a self-appointed apostle. He's, he's an imposter. He's a fake. Like the policeman. The man dressed up as a policeman. He's not real at all. He's got no authority. He's picked up some kind of second-hand message and he's garbled it. And he's, he's taught it wrongly to you. No, no, don't listen to him. You need to be circumcised as well. He's having you on. These people were confused. They were troubled. They were agitated. Paul was grieved about this. You know, if you were in a fire, in a house fire, and you were looking for a way to escape, and somebody came along dressed as a firefighter and said, no, no, don't go that way, go that way, you'd, you'd be torn, wouldn't you? You wouldn't know which way to go. That delay could be fatal. And these people were in that kind of situation. They were stuck between two options. Do we believe Paul? Do we believe these Judaizers, these, these circumcision people? We don't know which way to go. Who do we believe? Unlike us, they couldn't just pick up the phone, ask Paul his opinion. They couldn't go on the internet, listen to one of Paul's sermons on YouTube. There was no way of knowing. They had to wait for a, a message from Paul to come and set their hearts at rest. So this, this is the kind of context. Paul is disturbed by these people. I want you to know as well, these people came from the Christian camp. They weren't rank outsiders. They were people that sounded so logical. They were men who seemed to have very high standards. Now, we're very, very serious about the gospel. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey those special days and months. You need to observe the dietary requirements and eat certain foods. They didn't deny Christ. I'm sure they believed in Christ, but there was a twist in the tail. And that's always the way with false teaching in churches. It sounds so logical and so plausible. But yet there's part of it which is just not true, which completely distorts and turns the message upside down. You need to be aware of that. And how blessed we are, brothers and sisters, that we have an enormous heritage of godly men. We can read their works, the Puritans, Spurgeon, I have to mention Spurgeon every time. 
how, how blessed we are to have Bibles in our own tongue, in English, whatever our language might be. How blessed we are to have the heritage of 2,000 years of the Christian church, 500 years of the Reformation, enormous amount of good teaching available at a clicker, you know, keyboard. We can check. But these Galatian Christians didn't have that. Let's make use of our Christian heritage. Let's get to know the word of God. Let's make sure we know where we stand. Look at verse 8. What does Paul say? Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have said, or sorry, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. This is where it gets a bit controversial. So you think, wow, Paul, you know, such a loving and gracious man. What a hard thing to say about somebody. The word condemned is the Greek word anathema, which I'm sure you know, which is related to the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, hooray, which is a word which is used for something which is devoted to destruction, something which is under God's curse. Very, very strong term to use about these people that came in from the circumcision group. Paul wasn't being very charitable, was he? I want to explain to you why Paul was so strong in his use of words. Now, if Phil or Chris stood up here and called somebody anathema, you'd probably be shocked. But Paul is right to do this. That's how strongly he feels about the purity of the gospel. He speaks about it in no uncertain terms. These people are troublemakers. These people are like the people sending people the wrong way to their destruction in the fire. That's how important the gospel is. That's how you should value it. That's how, how bad these people are and what they're doing. It's just completely wrong and dangerous. I think in a sense he's trying to shock people. He wants his, his readers to be shocked by his emphatic use of language. He repeats it twice though. You notice he says the same thing or similar thing twice in verse 8 and verse 9. I think he did that on purpose because he wants people to know this is not some kind of rash outburst. He really does feel like this. He said it once. You know, we can all say things in anger and then you sort of regret, regret saying it. Well, he says it twice because he's saying, well, no, I do really feel this way. This is a measured response. Have you noticed here also, this is not a personal attack. He doesn't actually name any names here. He doesn't say, oh, you know, Demetrius, let him be an anathema, let him be cursed. He's talking generally about anybody who does this. It's not a nasty, personal, abusive attack. And it's also hypothetical, and Paul includes himself in this. Have you noticed that? So look, it says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one you received, let him be eternally condemned. So Paul says, even if I came back to you and preached to you a different gospel, a gospel of works, a mixed up gospel, don't believe me. Let me be accursed. Let me be cut off. Let me be condemned. Even, if, even if, if it were possible, an angel from heaven came and preached. Glorious being from above came and preached to you a different gospel. Don't even listen to that. Let that being be accursed as well. Paul is concerned about their eternal destiny. It's too much at stake to mess around and his words. People were being misled and it was criminal. It would cause us to cry out too if we believe the enormity of what was being said here. This isn't, isn't like a curse. Paul's not saying, you know, may you be damned. He's not saying that at all. But if a person is distorting the gospel, 
damaging the work of the kingdom, diverting glory from Christ by claiming his work on the cross was not enough to save people. If that person is troubling the church, confusing those escaping from destruction, setting them on the wrong road, the road that leads to hell and damnation, no matter how important or eminent they may be, they may be an angel, they might be a great person or a great prominent Christian leader, doesn't matter who they are, if they're doing these things, they are in a very, very dangerous position. And they are heading for severe judgment unless they turn from their ways. And that is true today about anybody who distorts the biblical gospel. It's not nice to say, but it is true. That that person who's distorting the gospel and confusing people, unless they turn from their ways, they are facing very, very severe judgment. It's a serious thing to mislead people. Paul was not writing people off. Next week or two weeks' time, we'll find, about, find out about Peter. Peter was, was in danger as well. Peter was, was um, being hypocritical, behaving in a, in a hypocritical way. Paul doesn't curse him. He deals with him gently, he corrects him. Because he was a true Christian brother who was deceived and living in sin. And had these people here repented and come back to the true gospel, Paul would have been only too pleased. He wasn't kind of, you know, just writing them off, you're finished, there's no, no hope for you. He was, he's trying to shock people. Can you see how much it mattered to Paul? The gospel, the purity of the gospel. Does it matter to us in the same way? In the past, men contended for truth. Men were concerned about truth, knowing the truth, <coughs> holding on to the truth, contending, fighting for the truth. Sometimes physically fighting for the truth. Today in our society, we're in a fog of vagueness where truth, the very notion of truth, is a kind of you know, nebulous thing. Everybody has their own truth, there's no such thing as objective truth. You know what? The Bible won't have that. The Bible says there is a truth. There's one truth. That truth is found in Jesus Christ. Being well-meaning is no excuse. There are plenty of well-meaning people, well-meaning people in the world who are deceivers and who are deceived. We need to be gentle with people. We need to be gracious with people. But let's contend for the truth. Let's hold on to the truth for the gospel. The God of the Bible is a very gracious God. The God of the Bible is a very patient God. But the God of the Bible offers a very, very narrow way to enter his kingdom. And that is focused on Jesus Christ and his cross. And, you know, there may be a great temptation in society we live in to say, well, it doesn't really matter. There are, there are many ways. I'm sure God will let the good Muslim into heaven or there's such good people outside the church. But the Bible doesn't say that. That's relying on your own works to get to heaven. The Bible will have none of that. It's very, very humbling. No, you have to come empty-handed to the cross of Jesus Christ. I talked to a man on Friday. He said to me, he's Christian, he said, why can't we have unity in the church? Why can't we all work together, Roman Catholics and all churches? Of course we want unity, don't we? We want unity more than anything else. It's so important we have unity as Christians. But let me ask you a question. Can, you, can we really have unity with somebody who prays to a statue of Mary? Can we really have unity with Christians, professing Christians who say that being a Christian is all about being healthy, wealthy and wise and God will make all your dreams come true. Can we really have unity, really, really have unity with people who don't believe the Bible is really all true? Can we really have unity with people that add a whole list of rules and legalistic kind of things to the Bible and say, well, you need to do all these things, otherwise you can't be saved? 
Can we really have unity with people that say, well, yeah, we believe in the gospel, but you can be as ungodly as you like, it doesn't really matter. Can we really have unity with people that have all kinds of further revelations? Say, well, Jesus Christ is good, but we have other revelations as well, which are in addition to the Bible. All these things are manifestations of false gospels. We should contend for the true gospel. Graciously, yes, very graciously, but uncompromisingly. The most serious matters are at stake. Verse 10, final verse. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why does Paul say this? Well, Paul was accused by these false circumcision people, let's call them that, Judaizers. He was accused by them of changing his message to suit different people. They said, well, amongst the Gentile people, Paul is keen to win an audience, so he's kind of lowering the standard for them. So he said, well, you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. He's just trying to please them to get more people in through you know, the doors of the church, not they had doors of the church, in, in, into the church, more converts for his cause by kind of making it easy for them. Paul is anything but that. Is this the language of a man pleaser, calling somebody, you know, anathema, a curse, preaching the true gospel? His opponents were the man pleasers. It says at the end of Galatians, they, the only reason they do this, this circumcision, is to avoid being, being persecuted for the cross of Christ. You know, if they were per- circumcised, they could still appear to be Jewish converts, a kind of brand of Judaism. They were cowards. Paul was absolutely fearless. Paul was bold as a lion. You know what? He, he didn't, doesn't care. He calls people out. He says, this is wrong. We need to decide, don't we, who we're going to please as Christians. It's impossible to please both God and men. You have to choose who you're going to please, who you're going to serve. Even in this day and age, the pressure is now on Christians to kind of preach an inoffensive gospel, which comfortably coexist with the unbelieving world. So, you know, you kind of brand of Christianity which is not focused on the cross, not focused on sin, not focused on judgment, not focused on deliverance, not focused on the grace of God. It's all about kind of, you know, universal goodness. And that's inoffensive. Nobody is concerned about that. But when we start preaching the cross and grace, you'd think, wouldn't you, grace would be the easiest thing in the world. People would just kind of embrace it and say, this is fantastic. God has done the work through Jesus Christ for me. And yet people, the human heart is so fickle. And so deceitful. We want to try and earn our own salvation and contribute. We even want to believe that somehow we had the power within us to choose Christ. No, it's all of him. Conclusions. Make sure we know and love the true gospel. Salvation by grace, through faith. Work of Christ from beginning to end. Love it, rejoice in it, teach it, hold on to it. It's absolutely central. False messages, messengers, and messages will come. Some add demands to the gospel. You need to do this, this, and this in addition to simple faith. Others divert from the message and take away from the message some key element. They make it useless. They completely turn it on its head. We need to avoid both extremes. A few tests. This gospel. Is it a message of grace, trusting in the personal work of Jesus Christ? If it involves human effort or emphasises human goodness, then it denies the cross. 
need to avoid that, don't we? Anything that smacks of human effort to try and earn God's favour is false. Does the gospel that is preached rejoice in being rescued from sin and from this present evil age? Some Christians would even deny that the world we live in is evil. They kind of think, well, there's evil in the world. Basically, people are basically good. And the world's not an evil place. That's not true. That's what the Bible says. Does the gospel that people preach leave people unchanged by its message? God, Christ came to deliver us from this evil age, not to leave us in it. And if people say, well, you can be a Christian and still live according to the ways of this evil age, then you have to question, what is their gospel? That's why Galatians is such a fantastic book. Because although it preaches salvation by faith, it also says, well, your Christian freedom does not mean you can live how you like and just do what you want. So that's okay because I've got freedom in Christ. No, it says you're, you're delivered for a purpose. Godliness and holiness for a better life, a life of the kingdom and the age to come. Do people have a careless attitude to truth? That would be completely alien to Paul. Paul was zealous. Paul was black and white to the nth degree about truth. Not about secondary issues, we're not talking about those things. We can disagree about those things, but the gospel is absolutely vital. Christians who do not understand or grasp the importance of this are naive at best. That's all I'll say about that. The best way to avoid deception is to grow in understanding. In one sense, it's very, very easy, isn't it, to be a Christian. You just cry out. My six-year-old daughter could do it. Cry out in faith and accept what Christ has done. But God's will for us is that we should grow as Christians. We should grow in knowledge if we don't, we miss out on the riches of the gospel, but we're also vulnerable. We're like sitting ducks, ready to be picked off. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up, till we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, as what Ephesians says. God's will for us is that we would grow as Christians, grow in our knowledge of the gospel. Now they always say this, don't they? You know, you've got fake, fake five pound note. The best way to, to spot a fake is by studying the real thing. We need to deepen up in the gospel. It's just a crying shame when you meet Christians who've been Christians like 30 years and they're still like baby Christians. They don't understand even the most basic fundamental things. Something wrong there, isn't it? Deepen up in knowledge so that we can teach others and enjoy the riches of the gospel. There's a lot more to it than just kind of very basic stuff. Let's feed on it and enjoy it. The job of pastors and teachers is to work for the maturity of the church. And they need to handle the word with care. You know, the gospel is not just for unbelievers, is it? It's for us as well. We need the gospel. We need the word preached to us. That's why it's very important when we choose our assistant pastor, isn't it? We need to choose somebody who really holds on to this word and does not deceive people because it's an important and responsible task. Very serious thing to lead other people astray, even unwittingly. Friends, the apostles still have a job to do. They still speak today through the Bible. There's no new revelation. There are no apostles today. The church are not the apostles. We stand on their shoulders, recorded for us in this book. We preach the same message, the apostolic message, with the authority given by Jesus Christ. When we preach the gospel, it's the same gospel, the same message that saves people. We stand on the authority that God's given us. 
not us being dogmatic. We, we should be driven by a desire for Christ to be glorified and for our fellow man, fellow men and women to be saved. Just to finish, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. For the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that comes by faith from start to finish. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. Amen.